Romans chapter 15. Romans, the 15th chapter. We have come today to our review of this chapter. As you know, after every one of the chapters that we've been studying in the book of Romans, we've come to the end and taken a week to look back. And I think that's important not just for us as a church, but if I can confess this, it's been very important to me as a pastor preacher. It allows me to step back and see the the working of Paul's argument. Paul is thinking much like an attorney would in laying out a case. And the case he's laying out is for God and against Jews and Gentiles and every man who would possibly have any kind of pushback on the gospel of God's grace. Just a little preview, we are finishing chapter 15 today, and I think, Lord willing, we only have three more in chapter 16, and then we will say uh, a, uh, an adieu, at least temporarily, to Romans after five years, five plus years of study. Much has been said, written, talked about regarding the advantages and the woes of email. If I could have one wish, now if you email me, this is nothing personal, but if I could have one wish in my life, I would wish for the demise of email worldwide. It's a very useful tool, but sometimes it is an ever-present nag. Not you personally, if you send me an email, I can see where it's going already. I'm not trying to nag you. I think you understand what I'm saying. Without wading into the cultural debate, there's certainly one thing that has suffered because of our email culture. And those of us who are, I don't know, north of 40 or so can probably track this. And that is the the demise of letter writing. Now, some of you are very faithful. Richard Oakes writes me handwritten letters in all caps. Very legible. There are certain people, let's just take a little informal poll. How many of you have written a handwritten letter in the last year? Wow. Let's close in prayer. That's amazing. (laughs) I'm not going to ask how many of you haven't. My suspicion is, though, that you've written more emails than you have letters. Now, I'm not trying to promote handwritten letters, although I think that would be a good thing to do or to suggest that email is ever going away, going away, because I do not believe it is. But few people in the world write letters anymore. There's an art to letter writing. It involves much more deliberate and thoughtful construction than firing off emails, and all you have to do is look at the spelling errors in most of mine, and you'll realize that. One of the most difficult parts of writing a letter, though, is always how you land the plane. How you conclude your letter. It's been said that last words are lasting words. And I think that's the case. Nowhere more true than in the New Testament epistles, which is a big word for letters that were written from the apostles to churches, sometimes to individuals. This is certainly true in the epistles. Last words are lasting words. Now, as we come into chapter 15, if your math is is up to speed and you know there are 16 chapters in the book of Romans, you understand we are fast coming to the close. 
And chapter 15 is where Paul makes his transition from the body of the letter to the postscript or the PS. Now, we've discussed many times that in the study of any book of the Bible, you recognize the enormous value provided for us over um, about four centuries where the versification and the chapter divisions were codified so that everyone would have a common way of referencing the Word of God. So that I, before that, you would have to say, Paul says in about the middle of the book of Romans. Or imagine... You know, in Isaiah or Ezekiel, three quarters of the way through, after the speech, it's very difficult to find referencing. So I am immeasurably grateful, forever thankful, that we can say open to Romans 15 and in a few seconds we're all sitting at the same place. And as wonderful as that is, there are times when out of convenience and contrivance, keeping the chapters at more of a uniform length, The chapter division decisions were made not always based on the content. And that's the case here in chapter 15. It really has two parts. The first 12 verses are actually a summary of all of chapter 14. And then from chapter, from verse 13 on to the end, it really begins the PS, the postscript of the entire book of Romans. So as we break this chapter down, it was a little bit difficult to say, how how do we summarize a chapter? Because it has really two different parts. It contains the final part of the instruction section and the beginning of the PS section. Truth be told, chapter 16, the final chapter, probably should have started in verse 13 of chapter 15. The first 12 verses, he concludes the topic he began in 14 on the issue of Christian freedom. Christian maturity, and Christian liberty. And then the final section, he begins his conclusion. So I'm going to confess, I I had no clever way of making this all jointed. There are two different breakdowns, two different parts of summarizing summarizing chapter 15, and we'll look at those one by one. Each of them have a heading and six subparts underneath. The first is the glory of God in Christian deference. And before we get to the outline under this, I just want to talk to you a little bit about what Paul is instructing. He highlights this critical principle that must exist for Christians to live together in unity and in harmony. The principle is simply this. It's not the glory of God in Christian differences. That's actually a good topic for another text and another sermon. It's the glory of God in Christian deference from the word defer. In other words, Paul says true unity is always achieved in the church by Christians learning how to defer to one another, love one another, give preference to one another. Here's the background. Chapter 14 addresses the subject of Christian liberty. Now, when we went through that, I had some, some uh, students in the high school say, what do you mean Christian liberty? Are we talking about the same thing as the Statue of Liberty or, Christ, or, or liberties in, 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 in our country? No, liberties are things that you are liberated to do that you don't have to do that involve preferences and enjoyments in life in the world that God has given. Otherwise known as Christian freedoms. Some people call these gray areas, and the reason they call them gray is they're not really black and they're not really white. 
And we discussed this in great detail in our study of chapter 14. In Paul's day, he had a problem. The issues were things like eating meat offered to an idol, celebrating festival days in the Old Testament law, even the drinking of alcohol where some people were offended by that. And this primarily was because of the amalgamation of Jews and Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ and now living in the church together in this Italian city. The believing Jews wanted to force their Judaism into their Christianity. All the Old Testament laws, the the festival laws, the eating laws, the dietary laws. What's clean, what's unclean. The Gentiles, on the other hand, had no allegiance to a religion or diet or days. They, They were happy to just love Christ and spend time with their new beloved brothers and sisters, be forgiven of their sins and acceptable before God. This caused an incredible collision between the Jews who had been been converted to Christianity and the Gentiles who had been converted out of paganism to Christ. Paul points to those who did not have these superstitions, these allegiances, as strong and weak. Let Let me say it another way. He said, if you have all of these hangups by the way the Old Testament law forces you to obey it as a way of being pleasurable to God in a ceremonial sense and honoring Christ in a worshipful sense, that's a collision, that's unnecessary. And, and frankly, you're weak or immature. You're leaning on externals for grace and acceptance with God rather than the gospel. On the other hand, He said the Gentiles weren't being sensitive to that. They were exercising and flaunting their freedoms and their liberties and and the Jews were offended by that and a problem ensued. Can I just summarize the heart of what was going on then and transition it into what happens today? Here it is. Be like me and my convictions, regardless of your convictions, Be like me and be like my convictions because I am right. Now, I know none of you would ever think that. None of us would ever wade into that. Come on, we're all like that, aren't we? You should think like me and you should be like me because I am right in what I think and what I believe. Where does that land in our culture? Well, what kind of music is okay to listen to and not? I've heard debates and I've seen Christian division on these kind of things. What can a Christian do or not do on Sunday? Is Sunday really the Sabbath? What entertainment is suitable for a believer? Should or can a believer drink alcohol? If so, how much? If so, what kind? Where should a Christian send their children to school? Homeschool, private school, public school. How many children should a believer have? Can a wife and a mother work outside the home in any dimension? And under what conditions and how much? Is it okay to possess luxury items like a a nice home, a car, or clothes, etc.? What about Halloween? Voting. 
Is it a Christian's obligation that he has to, she has to vote? The Second Amendment, length of hair, amount of makeup or use of makeup, color of socks. I wish I was kidding on that. I heard a debate between two brothers one time where a guy had fun with his socks and someone says that is completely unchristian. Breastfeeding, birth control, circumcision, eating gluten, eating dairy, eating corn, eating meat. It goes on and on and on. Some people say, be like me on these issues because what? I am right. No different than what was going on in the church at Rome. Here's the problem. Some of these gray areas can have serious influence on other believers. Those who are strong in these areas that are not bothered by things that are clearly not sin but can participate in them while others' consciences are violated by them. It's easy for them to look down on those who don't participate and say, you're so weak, you're the weaker brother, you're not mature. And it's easy for those who don't partake to look at those who do and say, you are absolutely out of control, unhinged, off the, the, uh, the, um, the proper use of Christian understanding and discernment. So Paul summarizes and concludes that whole discussion in chapter 14 in the first 12 verses of chapter 15. Now let's look at these principles very briefly, and this should be all review. Here's the first principle. Christian deference, deferring to one another, Christian deference sacrifices for the immature. He speaks to those who are mature first, those who are strong. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now, this is interesting. He's talking about those who are strong and he's referencing, if you follow the argument in chapter 14, he's referencing the Gentiles who did not have all the superstitious hangups of the Old Testament law. And Paul is identifying himself with those Gentiles. And Paul, as we know, was a Hebrew of Hebrews and one who knew the law inside and out. We who are strong, he had gotten over the superstitions. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses, bear the burden, bear the load of those without strength and not just please ourselves. In other words, Christian liberties are not just for you to enjoy. They're a way to measure your maturity. Summarized in verse two, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Here's the strong argument of chapter 14, summarized here in verses 1 and 2. People's consciences matter, even not your own. Now, in chapter 14, he says those who have conscientious objections, if someone's participating in something that is not clearly forbidden by the Scriptures, grow up. Don't be a weaker brother. Don't be trapped by superstition. Don't be enslaved to externals. He places the emphasis on the strong and the weak, the mature, the immature, the stronger consciences or the mature believers are to bear the weaknesses of the immature, not use the liberties to merely please themselves. In other words, those who are strong and mature ought to act like it. And the point is to do everything and anything to please his neighbor, to please his fellow believer. 
In other words, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. A second principle, again, this is all review. Number two, Christian deference, deferring to others, imitates the example of Christ. Now, this is going to come up twice in our, in our study. For even Christ, speaking of don't please yourself, even Christ did not please himself, but as it, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's a simple point. It's not, you, you see those little bracelets, what would Jesus do? It's a, actually a great reminder. But Paul is not saying what would Jesus do before he says, do you know what Jesus did? Have you studied his life? Do you see his, his convictions, his love, his deference for those? You know, I'm amazed even thinking about our Lord. He was the creator of the universe. Think about this. Every pleasure outside of sin, every pleasure ever invented by the mind of God on this earth was accessible to Jesus. And we find no record of him enjoying them. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. Even Christ himself. In other words, imitate Christ. Look, the little bracelet's good. What would Jesus do? And you can't know what Jesus would do unless you study the scriptures in the New Testament and the Gospels and know what Jesus did, correct? Thirdly, and again, we're just reviewing, I'm tempted to preach all these again. Christian deference is rooted in biblical instruction, verse four. Now we read this verse a lot and it points us back to the Old Testament and it's an important verse, but read it in context. For, in other words, connected to what I've just said, for whatever was written in earlier times, that's your Old Testament, your Older Testament, was written for our instruction so that through endurance or, perfect, or perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Great standalone verse for studying the Old Testament. Think about it in context. If you study the Old Testament and you see those that we call the saints of old, you'll see a pattern of men and women who pleased God not by pleasing themselves, but who honored God by always deferring to the needs and sometimes even the, the honor of others. Everything we're to do, Jesus says, summarizing what Deuteronomy says, is to love God and love others. Scriptures teach us how to be like Jesus by understanding that those in the Old Testament who were examples were also imitating the Christ they didn't know. Next part of his summary is in verses five and six. Christian deference generates true unity. This is really the crux of the whole thing. Christian deference generates true unity, verses five and six. Now may the God who gives endurance, perseverance, Encouragement, grant to you to be of the same mind, there's unity, with one another according to Christ Jesus. Remember, he's talking to two parties, two groups of people in the church at Rome, the saved Jews, the saved Gentiles, who were not getting along primarily because of these freedoms, these Christian liberty issues. And he longs for them to be of the same mind. 
This doesn't mean sitting on opposite sides of the church. This doesn't mean getting on different sides of the pew. This doesn't mean going to another church. It means working things out according to these principles. Verse six is the key. Look, so that with one voice, with one accord, you may with one cheerleading voice glorify God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's reverse engineer that for a second. If there are people in the church in Rome or at Mission Road, if there are people in the church who are known for pursuing, promoting, and criticizing preferences different than others in our same body, the world looks at us and we have no credibility to tell them about the unity of Christ. Verse six says, with one voice you would glorify God. Ever been in a situation? It could be at a stadium, it could be at a grocery store, it could be at an athletic event, it could be in church. And you see kids, brothers and sisters, just wailing on each other and fighting. It just makes you sick, doesn't it? Now, full disclosure, happened in my house many times before too. It ought not be that way. Proverbs says when you can't get along with your siblings, it's a shame to your mother and father. We are siblings and children of our father with one voice glorifying our father. This is speaking of unity. We have to defer to one another to get to that unity of being of the same mind that will uh, consequentially result in glorifying God with one voice. One voice. He, these are all as important when he stacks up. Lord Jesus Christ, the, the master, the one from Nazareth, the one who is the anointed one. It generates true unity, which creates a community of believers who jointly glorify God. Which leads, importantly... To our next point, Christian deference is obedience. This is straightforward. Christian deference is obedience. Therefore, here's the command, accept one another. Obey. Just as, listen, look at this zinger of the gospel. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. There is dripping rich gospel truth in this. God accepts us because of the, the sacrifice of his only beloved son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish and have everlasting life. The cost of God accepting us was the death of his son and anyone who believes that and then he rose from the grave and offers us salvation, anyone, anyone who believes that can be saved from their sins and spend eternity with Christ in heaven. And based on that, if you go backwards in the verse, accept one another. This was interesting because he would not have said this to the Roman church if they hadn't been struggling with this. Accept one another. Stop rejecting one another. Stop stiff-arming one another. John 13, 35 
somewhere we need this calligraphied or stenciled in our, in our church building. Certainly in our hearts, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You understand, do we understand that the lost and dying world is most attracted to our Savior by how we relate to one another more than how we even relate to them? We have no credibility loving the lost before we love each other. We want to invite them into the kind of relationships that we share with one another. Which leads us to our final summary of this first section Christian deference is Christ-like. I know that sounds a lot like what we said earlier, but this is a little different nuance. It's Christ-like. He goes back to Christ, verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. He did what was necessary so that he wouldn't offend the Jews. Although sometimes he did. When we get in our gospel study next year, we'll see that he often irritated the externalists, the religious Pharisees and Sadducees, but never those who had a tender heart. That was to the Jews. For the Gentiles, I want to glorify God for his mercy. That means not giving them what they deserved. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, Isaiah and Psalms, he quotes here, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, the Jews. Combination of the church in Rome predicted and prophesied and regulated in the Old Testament. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse who arises to rule over the Gentiles. The the Jewish Messiah is our Messiah as the Gentiles. In him shall Gentiles hope. He comes back to this salvific, this salvation purpose of Christ who is Savior of both Jews and Gentiles. Remember what he told, uh, God told Abraham, in you I will bless all the earth. And we should imitate Jesus in our loving acceptance of others, the mature to the immature and the immature to the mature. I, I cannot resist before we finish out this section. Just flip back to Romans 14 for a moment. Look how he, this is how he just closed that section. Look at how he begins it. Command again, now accept the one who is weak in faith, speaking to the mature, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Don't be the judge. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him. Sounds just like how Paul just concluded this section, doesn't it? Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls and he will stand for God is able to make him stand. Look down at verse 10. Why do you judge your brother? Now, what does judging look like? What does judging sound like? Ready? Be like me. Think like me. Why? Because I'm right. Paul said that's a terrible criterion. 
for influence. Now, at verse 12 is the end of the formal instructive part of the book of Romans. And in verse 13, he starts the PS. He starts the postscript. So I want to shift our outline to look at this because the first thing he does in the last part of this chapter is he defines his and I think subsequently our missionary mindset. A missionary mindset. First of all, verse 13, it is doxological. That means it gives praise to God. It receives blessing from God. It's God-focused and God-centered. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. That is such a rich statement. God is the reservoir of all hope and can fill us with all joy. If that's not enough, he adds, and peace. If that's not enough, he goes back to justification by faith in believing. So that you will overflow, abound, explode in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what he's saying? Verse 13 summarizes so much of what he said in the first 15 chapters by saying this. The gospel changes you into a hopeful, joyful person. Secondly, looking at this missionary mindset, it's church-based. It's church-based. Verses 14 and 15. And concerning you, now he's getting personal, he's greeting them. And concerning you, my brothers or sisters, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. What an encourager. Do you understand Paul has just for a chapter and a half taken them to the spiritual woodshed for not getting along and still finds evidences of God's grace in their lives? You know what this teaches me? I remember my, my friend John MacArthur said this so many times when I was out at his church. No one is all one thing. Think about that. No one is all one thing. Paul could have said, well, some of you are arrogant, strong Gentiles and some of you are superstitious, weak Jews. Amen, close the epistle. I love his encouragement. You're full of goodness. How? Filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. A missionary mindset to reach the world with the gospel starts at home. And this is where Jay Adams gets his famous book, Competent to Counsel. Church-based ministry, church-based outreach starts with the fact that we can care for and shepherd and pastor one another. Now, that should do two things to you. <laughs> it should relieve you and it should burden you. The relief is real and the burden is easy to bear. And as we said when we studied this passage, these people didn't even have a completed New Testament. And he says, you're competent to counsel. You are able to admonish or counsel, encourage, build up, correct, confront one another. but I've written very boldly to you on some points. Can you, can you remember Paul in the book of Romans? I think that is such an understatement 
on some points. How about almost every point, Paul? I've written to you boldly on some points so as to remind you again, and if you ever, parents, can I just encourage you from Paul's example, if you find yourself thinking, I just said this this morning and yesterday and last week and seven times in the last hour, so did Paul with us. I want to remind you again because of the grace which was given to me from God. In other words, the church is to minister to itself and care for itself. Ministry is church-based before it goes out of the building. Thirdly, it's also evangelistic. Verses 16 to 21. He says, grace was given me from God to be a minister. That's not an apostle. That's just like you and me, someone who represents God, represents Christ. He says to the lost Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. He just says, when it comes to God, I love to brag about who he is, what he has done, and what he can do. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what what Christ has accomplished through me. All of us are natural born braggers. And Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I want to boast in what Christ has done and accomplished through me. For him, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, we studied this in the book of Acts. We went through this. He constantly wanted to go to the Jews, wanted to go to the Jews. Every city he goes to in the book of Acts, he goes to the synagogue first. That never worked out well for him. And so God turned his face to the Gentiles. In the power of signs and wonders, verse 19, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus, I aspired to preach the gospel. I love this. Here's the evangelism. Not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see. And they who have not heard shall understand. A mission mindset desires to spread the gospel, not just dig wells and plant vegetable gardens. Yes, there's redemptive things that missionaries take on the field with them, but they take the message of how to be right with God for all eternity. That's the message. Boy, verse 20 ought to be a ringing aspiration in our church that we're praying about, talking about, caring about, giving toward, encouraged by. Christ being named were those among those who don't know him. I was speaking recently with my friend, Massimo Molica, who is pastoring and uh, church planning and mission, uh, missionary in Genoa, Italy, which is if you go straight up the boot on the left side as it turns to the left, it's right there. I was shocked to say, to hear him say, I've only found a handful of people in the hundreds of people that I've evangelized, I've only found a handful of people who've ever heard the gospel. Man, that makes me want to pray. We'll get to that in a moment and bear that burden. 
A missionary mindset, fourthly, is strategic. For this reason, I've often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, he wanted to stop by Rome on his way to Spain to tell those people about the gospel. He didn't need to stay in Rome because there was already a church there. For I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. I love the fact that Paul had a strategic plan. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew where he wanted to take the gospel and he knew who he needed to help him. And are we that kind of church who missionaries can look at and count on to help them do this task of taking the gospel where it's never been heard? Fifthly, we looked at the fact that it's also pastoral. And for this, if you'll remember, we got out a map and actually studied maps on Sunday morning. But for now, I am going to Jerusalem. He was already halfway to Rome and went 3,000 miles out of the way back down Jerusalem by boat and foot and all the way back to Rome. 3,000 miles out of the way that would cost him three years to serve the saints. From Macedonia and Achaia, that's the Peloponnesus of Greece and the mainland of Greece, have been pleased to make a, an offering, a contribution for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. He's saying, listen, the Gentiles ought to realize to help the Jews who are saved in Jerusalem, who are starving to death, the famine, being ostracized, being alienated, being disenfranchised. It's something they ought to be joyful doing because their Savior is the Jewish Messiah. Friends, we should never, ever dismiss what Paul calls a debt we owe to our Jewish friends. Therefore, when I finish this, after I go to Jerusalem and have put my seal on the fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. That's where he wanted to end up. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. 3,000 miles and three years out of the way to take care of the church. And the sixth dimension or description of a missionary mindset is in verses 30 and 33. And this is where the rubber meets the road for you and me. It is caring. Now, I urge you, I exhort you, I beg you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. I think that's the love the Spirit has poured out on them to agonize, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. We outline this by saying there are two parts of a church looking out for missionaries. It's really simple. Prayer and care. Real simple. Prayer and care. He tells us two categories of prayer right here. He says that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. You know, I was... a uh, talking this week, Aaron and I were talking and I was, I was so encouraged to hear him say, he read that passage 
and realized, I hope I can say this, that I had, he said, I so often thought, you know, praying for the safety of, of missionaries, that's, you know, they signed up for the dangerous part. They're willing to give their lives for the glory of God. Let them go. And some will and some do. But we were discussing how convicting it is that Paul asked for prayer for safety. Rescue me from those who are disobedient in Judea. They wanted to kill him. That's a prayer for safety. It was more than just physical also. They longed to destroy, read 2 Corinthians. They longed to destroy his reputation so that he would be rendered ineffective for Christ. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So it wasn't just for physical safety, it was for spiritual fruit. That's how we pray. We pray for physical safety, physical well-being, and spiritual fruit. When you get a, a, a letter from a missionary, an email from a missionary like I did just a few weeks ago, whose kids were going in for tonsil and adenoid surgery, you don't just say, oh, God be with them. What do you do? We pray for their safety. We pray for their well-being. Paul saying, if I'm cared for, I can care for others. It's not just prayer. <laughs> it's care. Look at verse 32. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing in your company. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Prayer and care and offering refreshment. A few years ago, John Glass was here and preached on how to take care of a missionary. And I was surprised to hear him say, one of the things that a church can do most when a missionary is with you is just give them a vacation. I was taken back by that a little bit. You know, like you're the pioneers. We're following you. Paul says, I need a vacation with you. I need to be cared for you. I want to serve with you. I want to find rest, refreshing in your company, which means to be with the Romans was to be encouraged and have a, a respite from his labors and to rest. Is your home ready? If we got a phone call, from a missionary coming through town. I just need three or four days in Kansas City. I just need a break. Is your home ready? Are you willing to give up your bed to give it to them? Sleep on the floor? I want to be that kind of church. Always ready to provide rest and refreshment to those who labor for Christ. This brings us to the final chapter where Paul is about to provide a masterful closing. Remember I said we don't know how to write letters anymore? If you want to learn how to close a letter, you gotta, you got to read chapter 16. It'll take us three weeks to get through it, I think. It's far more than a list of names. It's far more than a ministerial resume. It's like looking at a team picture and walking through and pointing out each individual on the team and talking about them. 
So can I encourage you, as odd as it sounds, when people get to chapter 16, that's, they just say, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm going on to 1 Corinthians. Would you read chapter 16 this week slowly and begin to see what the Spirit of God has put that you can mine out for incredible gospel application. If you know the Lord, these are refreshing principles to us. I'm always aware in, in a room of several hundred people that there may be, there's likely people who don't in two categories. You may be here saying, I, I don't know what this is about. I'm not a Christian. I have questions. Would you please talk to any of us about that? We'd love to introduce you to our Savior. Our prayer room will be open in a minute to, the, to my right. But I'm most burdened by people who may have sat in this or another church for a long period of time who know things that are true about the Bible, who know things that are true about the gospel, but you've never devoted your life to who Paul describes as the master, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a good day. This is a good day for you to turn from your sins, find forgiveness, Stop tossing and turning at night wondering what would happen to you if you died and make peace with God who loves turning enemies into friends at the sacrifice and expense of the death of his only begotten son. If you have questions about that, please, please, People around you would love to explain to you what it means to know and serve and love. Jesus from Nazareth, who's not dead anymore, but alive and offering salvation to any who believe. Will you pray with me? Father, I'll admit I'm, I'm getting a little wistful and turning to the last chapter of this epistle to Romans, I, to the Romans, I almost want to start over. Every phrase echoes in my heart. Every phrase calls obedience in my own conscience. Change us. Forgive us. Minister to us and bless us because of him. Ask your mercy on folks who may not know our Savior. By the power of your Holy Spirit and his work of revelation, open hearts to see true spiritual conditions and to find the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dismiss us now with great thoughts of a great Savior and a mission you've called us to accomplish. Because of Christ we pray, amen.